I couldn't talk any better this morning, but it ended up okay. So we'll see what the Lord will do today, this afternoon or this evening. We're gonna. What I've decided to do is we're gonna look at Calvary distinctives, but I'm not so much gonna call it Calvary distinctives. I'm gonna call it elements of theology, elements of theology, just to look and just to confirm the things that we believe. Not just theology for theology's sake, but when we talk about things like salvation, that we would truly know, that we would truly understand what we are talking about. We'll be looking about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll be looking at probably the next subject I'll be tackling is the inerrancy of the Word of God. To look at the inerrancy of the Word of God and look at the source of the Word of God. That Bible that you have upon your lap, where did you get it from? I know that you got it from the mouth of God, but how did it come to be? And so we'll be looking at subjects such as that. So tonight we're going to be looking at what the theologian calls soteriology. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. What we'll be looking at Tonight is an in-depth study of salvation, its cause, God's part, and its effects. Now, one of the greatest sections of Scripture concerning theology is in John chapter 3. And really, it starts in John chapter 2, the last verse, verse 25. have gone through this before, but we're going to use this as the foundation of our salvation study. And actually, I'll start reading at verse 23 of the previous chapter, of chapter 2 in the Gospel of John. It says, Now when he, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believe in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So they believe in his name. They're not really believing in him for salvation, but they're believing that this guy's an amazing guy. He can do some pretty amazing things. Now if you were there, you would think, Wow, look at all the people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But everybody who looks like they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ isn't necessarily coming to that saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. They were focused upon the signs, but they weren't focused upon faith in who Christ is. Verse 25, And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Lord knows the heart. <clears throat> the Lord knows the heart of everybody that makes an outward confession of Christ. The Lord knows the heart of everybody who calls themselves a Christian. The Lord knows the hearts of all men. So chapter 3, it's as if the best case scenario of who a man is, is presented. It's as if man is presenting our champion, if you will, and that the Lord knows the hearts of all men. Well, check out the heart of this guy. This guy being this man, Nicodemus. It says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Well, just in that sentence, it really says a mouthful for who this man is. So check out this man, Nicodemus. He's a man of the Pharisees. He's really religious. He knows the word inside and out. As far as keeping the word, he keeps the word meticulously. This is a man who we look at, we see in this man, a very holy man. Nicodemus, he was probably exceptionally educated. Nicodemus, well, this is a Jew, obviously, because he's a Pharisee, but he's got a Greek name. Very well could have had parents that that were living outside of, of, uh, of Israel, and it was common for a well-off Jew, especially one that lived outside of Israel, to give their child a very good education, Greek education. 
When it says he was a ruler of the Jew, we would look at somebody like that who was well respected in society. More than likely, he was head of a synagogue in the local area, wherever he was from. Um, could have been somewhere along the lines of a mayor. Just he was he was looked at as the ideal man. This guy is is our perfect candidate. It says in verse two, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And now, he didn't even ask Jesus anything, because remember, just saw that Jesus knew what was in the heart of all men. And so Jesus is kind of looking at him, Jesus perceiving where he's coming from and the questions he's even going to answer, because it says Jesus answered. Well, he hasn't even asked a question, but Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus answered and said to him, Most surely I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus gets right to the root of the matter. You can call yourself a Christian. You can say that you're really religious, exceptionally educated, and well-respected in society, but Jesus is as if he's pointing to him, and when he points to him, he points to all mankind. You must be born again. I don't ask people anymore, are you a Christian? Because the majority of the people will answer that they are. What I'll ask people are, are you born again? Because born again insinuates a change. That somewhere in their life, there had to be a change. I've asked people, are you born again? Well, I'm a Christian. Well, I didn't ask if you're a Christian. I asked if you're born again. Now, if you're born again, you're a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, but you're not born again, you're not really a Christian. But we can so use that title as a shield to reflect any further inspection of our heart and how the relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, most surely, listen, this is a necessity. I say to you, Jesus is saying to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, in essence, are saying, what are you talking about? Verse 5. Jesus answered, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of the water, there's been, well, I shouldn't say there's been, but there is a lot of ideas what that means. Some people say it's baptism. But then we would be putting, attaching a work to salvation. So if we put baptism there, one is born of baptism in the Spirit, if somebody wasn't baptized, then they would not be born again. But I don't see in the scripture anywhere where it says that you have to be baptized to be born again. What I do see is if you're born again, you get baptized. It, it can't be baptism or we're adding a work of man onto salvation. Some people say, well, this speaks of the birth process. It doesn't really make sense either. Now, what do I need to get right with God? Well, you, first you have to be born. Well, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, why would Jesus, that's just kind of silly. Why would he say that you have to be born first? Uh, again, it just, I, I just can't see Christ going there with that. Born of the water, well, as husbands, we are to wash our wives clean with the water of the word. Jesus told Peter he was already clean because of the word that he had spoken to him. The water, water is a picture of the word of God. And so, and surely I say to you, unless one is born of the water, unless you hear the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, and the Spirit. Now, the Spirit here in your Bible, if you note, it's capital S. It speaks of the Holy Spirit. So I can 
attach that experience to my life. I'm born again. How was I born again? At some point in my life, I heard the gospel. Now, for me, it wasn't just hearing it once, but I heard it over a period of time. And over a period of time, God did his work through the gospel, but also transformed my life. And that transforming work that he did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Because I was born. I, I was born on the day, December 6, 1957. That which, but I was flesh. That's what born of the flesh is flesh. And I lived my life in the flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I was born again through the giving of the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from. <clears throat> and where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what I've done in my Bible, I've linked John chapter 3, really John chapter 2, verse 20, 23, through John chapter uh, 3, verse 8, with Ezekiel chapter 37. So if you turn over to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37, we see where this concept was brought up so long ago to the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord gives him a vision here. Ezekiel chapter 37, starting at verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 14. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, prophet Ezekiel speaking, and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, brought me out and in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Well, to the Jew, bones, dead people's bones, that would be something that would be very unclean. So he's looking at this valley, and it's full of bones death, if you will. It's full of that which is unclean. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. This is as dead as dead can be. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Well, Ezekiel knows better than to just say no, and he says, so I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Well, what is a prophet speaking when he is prophesying? He's speaking God's word. And so we've got these bones, this valley of dead, dry bones. It's something that is very unclean. God brings the prophet and he says to speak the word of God to that which is dead and that which is unclean. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I was cause breath. Now when it says cause breath in Hebrew, that word can also be translated spirit. Both of them really work here. This wouldn't be the Holy Spirit, but spirit as in life. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you or ligaments on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So the prophet Ezekiel, verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. We're not told what that noise is, but I imagine it was just a little rattling, just a little little clanking together of, of bones there that probably made him wondering, what was that? And so I prophesied as I, as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I look, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Now, no spirit, Holy Spirit yet, but what has he done? 
he spoke the word of God to them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain. Well, what did Jesus say? Nobody knows where the wind blows or where it comes from. So here he's speaking of the four corners of the earth, that they may live. And so I prophesied, he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry and our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, and I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit, that's capital S here, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, had spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And so we look back or look forward and we see Jesus Christ. He has spoken it and I've experienced it. I was, I was dead. I was unclean. I was just as dead and unclean as that valley of bones. I was apart from God and had no desire whatsoever for God, but God. But God in his great mercy and his love with which he had for me, he saved me. He saved me. Somebody well, God told somebody to prophesy to me. He didn't say, thus saith the Lord. It was just somebody who God laid it upon their heart to share the word of God with me. I don't even know that God said, share it with Mike, or he said, share it that day. But nonetheless, God moved that person's heart. And as he moved in that person's heart to preach the word, I was in a church service, I heard the word of God. And as I heard the word of God, he stirred something inside of me. Something inside of me changed. And then the Holy Spirit did this work. Did this work and completely changed my life. And I was born again. In a nutshell, that's the doctrine of soteriology. It's the doctrine of salvation. Jesus pointed it out very bluntly to a really good man who wasn't good enough to be saved unless God did something in his life. Now, it wasn't a new concept because the Lord had given it to Ezekiel. Matter of fact, we're even going to go back as far as Genesis chapter 1 to see the concept there. So what is salvation? Salvation, it's a free gift that contains six basic elements. Six basic elements. First, salvation originated in the mind of God. It originated in, it wasn't my good idea, it wasn't any man's good idea. It wasn't a prophet's good idea. This comes from the throne of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's two thoughts on the opposite sides of the spectrum. One is called Calvinism, and the other is called Arminianism. The Calvinist, well, we'll go all the way to the extreme of the right. The Calvinist will say that you were saved, you had absolutely no choice, you were going to go to heaven whether you wanted to or not. The Arminius, going all the way over to the other side of the spectrum, would say, Basically, in both sides, both extremes are heresy. He would say that salvation is up to mankind. He would 
presented as the choice is completely yours and God is just sitting around waiting for you to make the choice. And we know, as in all things, the truth is in the middle. Now you have to look at the nature of God. The nature of God is, is that God exists in eternity. So it's one of the great hopes that we have. Sunday night, you're probably going to leave church. Most of you will make it home safe. You'll go to bed, you'll wake up, and you'll start your week. You don't know what's going to happen. You've got a pretty good plan of what's going to happen this week. Most of us have plans for Friday, which is the 4th of July. But you don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's always those unknowns that kind of are fit in or thrown in, pushed in or whatever. But God knows what's going on. And it's one of the great hopes that we have that my God exists in my eternity. So everything that goes on in my life, or at least my future, I'm entering into what God has prepared for me. But God doesn't just exist in my next week. He exists in my whole life. He existed in my whole life even before I was born. Now, if I gave you 50 bucks, we don't gamble here, but if I gave you 50 bucks, told you to go to the horse track and place 50 bucks on old paint to win, you would say, old paint? Old paint's a broken down horse. He's not going to win. I think, I know he's going to win. I'm telling you he's going to win. Don't put it down on anybody else but old paint. And so you go there and you put it down on old paint and you win. And you come back with, however, I don't understand odds and all that, but you come back with a pile of money. And so the next week I tell you, now I want you to go and I want you to go put the rest down on Elmer. Elmer to win. And so, well, Elmer hasn't done anything. Elmer hasn't even finished race, but hey, he was right the first time. He's going to be right the second time. I've got insight here. I've got some kind of insight that, well, if I know Paint's going to win and Elmer's going to win, why would I bet on anybody else? And so we're told that, well, God, whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God knows those who are going to be saved. Now, is there a choice in our salvation? Well, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And he was speaking of his death upon the cross. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Now, what is the lifting up? It's lifted up upon the cross. If I be lifted up, I will draw. What, what is it? It, it? It's the ultimate expression of the love of God. The ultimate expression of love of God draws man. Now, when it says draw man, now, if, if there was a well over here and I told you to draw some water up there, you wouldn't stand up there and go, come on, water, come on up, come on up, water. No, you would throw the bucket down, allow the bucket to fill up, and you would draw it out. The water wouldn't have much of a choice. But see, draw is not necessarily that kind of draw that is being spoken of in John. It speaks of an attraction. If Jesus is lifted up, we see the love of God and it attracts, because that's what attracted me, was the love that Christ had for me. And so God knew the choice that I was going to make. Even Paul said, because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, if man doesn't have a choice, why would we be out there persuading men? It just wouldn't really make any sense. So I do have a choice, but the thing about it is, God knows those who are going to choose him. Now, if you don't have a choice, then what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world. And I heard the argument. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Loved the world, but only died for those who he had chosen. And again, you start getting off on some weird paths when you start bending scripture to match your theology and both sides of that spectrum have done that. I might do one of the studies on Calvinism and Arminianism. I don't really know if I want to go there, but 
It's something that continues to be an argument within the church today. But the fact of the matter is salvation comes from the throne of God. It originated in the mind of God. Secondly, salvation depends upon the grace of God. Without the grace of God, there's no salvation. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10, through 10, God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed. See, it was always, salvation was always by grace. Look at your, the totality of the Old Testament. Salvation was even by grace back then. It just hadn't been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We understand it all now because of Jesus Christ. That's how I understand. If I be lifted up, that's how I understand the love of God. And now that I'm saved, I understand the grace of God because it was not according to our works. Because if it was according to our works, I bet you I could do it better than you. But the problem with that is there's somebody out there who could do it better than me. Do what? Do the religion thing. Do whatever is necessary to be right before God if in fact it was by works. And then what's the standard? If Jesus is the standard, then nobody gets into heaven because nobody can do the works that the Lord Jesus Christ did. If it was Nicodemus, well, that would whittle the field way down. But nonetheless, heaven would be a very empty place. If it's by works, which the Jew thought for so long, you work yourself to exhaustion and even then, you still have no hope. It's about grace. By grace, you have been saved. You've been saved by grace, not of works, because why? You'd boast about it. You'd brag about what you've done and what you were able to do, but it's not based upon that. It's based upon what God has done. So salvation does not depend upon your works. That means you don't have to do better. And it also means that, well, today is the day of salvation. And you've heard it said before, well, I'm either not ready yet or you don't know what I've done or you don't know what I'm involved in right now. You're right, but God does and God still is willing to give you grace because, again, grace is a free gift. If you think you've got to do something to get grace, then you don't understand grace. We sang it this morning, amazing grace. It's amazing grace. It's off the charts. Thirdly, salvation requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As I said before, as we were looking at John chapter 3, but it requires the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'll show you why. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, remember, it's not by works, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that made me into this new creation. You being born again is a supernatural work of God. Now, some of you here have had babies. Others of us were in the room while babies were born. It's just an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to see the child come out of the womb and breathe its first breath and just to just to see that process. You just see the miracle that is involved in it. Well, how about at the beginning of creation? Beginning of creation? Well, the Holy Spirit was there. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, when it says the earth was without form and void, that means it was just a blob of the elements. A blob of elements. Remember, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the earth is going to be destroyed in the future down to its very elements. Well, this is a glob of elements, a glob of elements that is just kind of floating in space. It's all of the necessary building blocks that God created from nothing, but all the necessary building blocks that are there that have yet to be assembled. What was missing? And I don't want to say missing because that's not really true because God had just not yet acted upon it. But now he is. When it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, when it says hovering, a better term for that would be vibrating. Now, if you would open up your science books, you would see all forms of power come in the form of vibrations, such as light. There's vibrations from light. There's vibrations from sound, sound waves. There are electricity herds that's in the the form of of a wave, a form of a vibration. I was an electrician. People ask me, you're an electrician? Have you ever been electrocuted? No, because if you're electrocuted, that means you're dead. But I have been shocked before. Have you ever been shocked before? When you're shocked, you'll feel it. It's a vibration. It's a, you know, a vibration because that's how all God-ordained power forms are. They're in the form of vibrations. Well, this is the power of God through the Holy Spirit acting upon the necessary building blocks and pulling them together, and you'll see by the word of God, then they all come into being. And so it was the power of God, a miracle of God that I was born. But it was also a miracle of God that I was born again. Again, both of them, as you look at them, you see they're a miracle. It's a supernatural occurrence. And so if you've ever been in the presence of anybody who was saved, who was born again, you saw a supernatural miracle of God happen right before your eyes. And you can't discount that. You can't discount that. You need to see the miracle, and you need to see the power of God in that. Fourthly, salvation centers upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, men are not saved. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-21, through 21, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, <clears throat> but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest or revealed in these last times for you, who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so without Christ's death, then the price for sin has not been paid and you can't be saved. How do we know that? Because when man died, the scriptures tell us in the gospels and in the epistles that when man died before Christ died on the cross and was resurrected, he went to Hades. He went to a good side of Hades called paradise, but man could not enter into the kingdom of God. He could not enter in, I should say, I guess, to the presence of God because there was always that separation of sin. 
but Jesus died on the cross to pay the price, and the proof of that was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, salvation demands a human response. We saw this in the study of Matthew. What was the doctrine that John the Baptist came preaching? So, uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's the doctrine that Jesus Christ taught? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that tells me that God didn't just come, <clears throat> die on the cross, resurrected, and throw a salvation blanket over all of mankind. That's not according to the nature of God. God did save those who respond properly, if you will, those who repent. So there's got to be, for salvation, a preaching of the word of God. There's got to be a movement of the Holy Spirit, and there's got to be the repentance of man. So this response toward, is to be towards our sinful nature when we realize that we're sinners. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, it's one of those if then verses, there's no then, the then is implied, but just hear me out. If we confess our sins, it says, he, or then, in parentheses, it's not contained in the word, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we confess our sins, then he's faithful to forgive. What if we don't, what if we don't confess? And he's not going to forgive. You have to have the confession in order to get the forgiveness. Salvation demands a response, and that response has got to be concerning Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The heart is always revealed through the mouth. Sixthly, salvation results in a new position and a new relationship with God. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, I'm in a new position. Before, what was I? I was enmity with God. Now, God still loved me. God still desired that I get right with them, but I was in battle with God. Because how many times had somebody tried to share the gospel with you before you were saved, and you just didn't want to hear it? Just rubbed you the wrong way. The reason you don't want to hear it, and the reason they don't want to hear it today, because they're enemies with God. And it's convicting. And the conviction hurts. And the conviction goes deep. And the conviction is that which tells them that a change is necessary, but they've dug their heels in against God. Now, these six points, if you'll note, if you take any of them away, any one of them away, the whole plan falls apart. But the reality is all six of the points exist because God wanted to have a relationship with mankind. Now, it's God who not only saved me, it's God who keeps me in this relationship as well. Why would God keep me? I know some of you. I wonder, why does God keep you? Why does God keep any of us? First thing we're told, God keeps us for his good pleasure. Again, you bring pleasure to the heart of God. It's an amazing concept. In Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. And it pleased God to see you saved. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 
For it is God who works in you both to will, because it's its will, and to do for his good pleasure. Salvation was for the pleasure of God. But you need to go a little bit deeper than that. Your salvation is for the pleasure of God. Next, salvation is kept as it is so that we would see the providence of God. That we would see that God loves us to the degree that he provides for us. Again, I've already told you, salvation didn't come from me. My salvation didn't come from me. Your salvation didn't come from anybody else. Your salvation came from the throne room of God, that he would be the one who is seen as our provider. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Salvation? Salvation is all according to his plan. This isn't something that God just dreamed up. This was his plan from the foundation of the earth revealed when, well, when would salvation need to be revealed? When sin was revealed. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the revelation of sin, the revelation of salvation. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We know that that means that Satan is going to torment man, but Jesus is going to have the ultimate victory over the devil and over sin and over death. And so as sin came upon the scene, so did the salvation plan. Now the salvation plan, again, existed from the beginning of the earth, from the foundation of really before earth was even formed. Why? Because God inhabits eternity and he knew that sin was going to happen and he knew that he wanted to, for his good pleasure, to be reunited with man. Salvation... Salvation is also for God's purposes. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. And so I've been saved for God's purposes, for God's purposes even right now to preach this sermon, for God's purpose who I may share with tomorrow, for God's purposes, well, however it is that I glorify his name. But God saved you, and he didn't save you just haphazardly or just to do it. He had reason and purpose in his salvation that he gives to mankind, the salvation that he gives to you. Again, John chapter 3, verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice how the very word salvation denotes a problem to whom it is directed towards. You need to be saved. Who needs to be saved? Only those people who are in imminent danger. And unless something happens, unless some outside source interacts upon their life, they're going to be destroyed. Because, again, they need to be saved. Mankind needs to be saved. Why? Because he is headed for destruction. God entered in so that man would not be destroyed. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, as good as you are, as good as you seem to be, you need to be born again. You need to be saved, Nick, because you're headed for destruction. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. You must 
be saved. You cannot just say so-and-so was a good person. The only way that they're in heaven is if they were born again. And I hear it. I even hear it amongst unbelievers. I'm sorry, amongst believers. Well, where was he without the Lord? Well, I'm not really sure, but he was a really good person. That means absolutely nothing to God. Because the only way that you get to heaven through a good person is to be as good as God all the time. And man can't do that. Paul closed the books on that in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. I'm not going to read it for time, but he just hammered that coffin shut. There's none. There's none who does good. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. And he's just going through and he's just shredding any possibility of any good person. There's none. Everybody must be born again. Everybody has to be saved because all humanity is tied to the train tracks and the locomotive is coming. The problem is a lot of society has gotten very comfortable on the train tracks, even enjoys the train tracks. And you've heard it all before. Well, you know what? I don't believe that God sends anybody to hell because I'm a good person. I don't care what you say. I'm a good person. Proverbs 14, 12 through 14 says, <clears throat> There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be, bring, may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. So a truly good man is one who has given his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody who says what their God will do and it's contrary to the scripture, they're an idolater. They have formed a God according to their own way and a God that fits in their perception of who God is. We are to tra be transformed into the image of the living God. We are not to transform God into the image of mankind. To do that, again, is to be an idolater. So... God being a just God, he determined that mankind should be redeemed. But to be redeemed, there was a price that was necessary to be paid. Because I said he was a just God. Justice is part of the nature of who God is. Again, God could say, well, there's man, he sinned, he needs to be saved. Okay, everybody saved. He could have just spoken salvation into existence and just covered all humanity with that. But that's not justice. That's like somebody committing a murder, going on trial, and the judge saying, well, you seem to be a good man, and well, yeah, you committed murder, and you ought not to do that anymore, but we're just going to let you go. And if it was one of your relatives, you would think, well, where is the justice? Because if you commit a crime, you really need to pay a price. That wasn't just something man has dreamed up. That's according to the nature and desire and the word of God. And so a ransom, a price was necessary to be paid for redemption. Redemption is given to man freely, but it costs God greatly. Justice demands that a punishment be given for the breaking of God's law. Without this, our whole society breaks down. Without that concept, all of society breaks down. The cost of the ransom was death, but it needed to be paid by someone who would not stay dead? How would he continue to intercede for mankind? It also needed to be done by or paid by someone who did not deserve the punishment. Now, if Jesus came and Jesus sinned, then as he was on the cross, he was paying for his own sin. 
So it had to be somebody that was undeserving. An undeserving person is the only person who could pay the price. Now, if you're going to depend upon Mike to pay the price, you got a big problem because I can't pay the price for my sins. If I try to pay the price for my sins, it's as if I'm going to be hung up on the cross. But the problem is I never really pay the price. I'm up there and I'm up there for eternity. The price is never paid. So God, because of the great love with which he had for you, God decided to pay the price for your sin. Again, John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Most surely I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, you've been born again. You've been saved. You've heard the word of God, and God stirred your heart. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been regenerated. What happened to you? What happens to mankind at salvation or at the point of regeneration? Well, the first thing that happens is you're regenerated. You're born again. See, to be generated is to be born. To be regenerated is to be born again. You're all in existence. You were obviously born, but you do need to be born again. Second Corinthians speaks of that miracle. Chapter 5, verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, doesn't matter who they are, if anyone, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The moment you're saved, the whole slate gets wiped clean. Wiped clean in the sight of God. There may be repercussions, but as far as sin, God chooses at that point. Well, we'll get into doctrine and justification in a little bit. But at that point, you've been washed clean. You have been changed. You're a new creation. It's as if your DNA has been changed. It's as if you have received a new chromosome in there. I don't know how many chromosomes man has or any of that stuff. I don't know anything about it, but it's as if you got a new one, a new one or one added to you. You're just simply a new creation in Christ. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, but as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them, to those who received Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's kind of an interesting verse there. Not of corruptible seed. What's corruptible seed? My father's seed was corruptible seed. What was my father's seed? Well, the seed is the male contribution to the reproductive process. And if you look back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, you'll see man lived, had kids, and he died. The kids lived, had other kids, and they died. There was a corruption there. Man kept dying and dying and dying. But then we've got God's incorruptible seed, his word, which as it enters into the heart of mankind... It says here, we will live and we will abide forever. Now we are new creation in which sin, Satan, and the world have no hold over us. Second thing that happened, the moment that you believed, the moment that you were born again, you were justified. Justified means just as if I have never sinned. We already saw in Romans chapter 3 that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but now God sees you in a different light. He sees you just as if you have never sinned. Now, if one of you maybe teach a class here and have the little kids, and maybe you had my grandkids in your class. My grandkids, 
being imperfect as they are, can be a little wild at times. And you had them in there and you think, man, Pastor Mike's grandkids are just kind of off the wall sometimes. They're just, they just get out of, out of control sometimes. And every time you see them coming into the church, you're thinking, I hope they don't come into my classroom today. Now, I know how off the wall they can be because I spend a lot more time with them. But when I see them, they're my grandkids. I see them just as if they have never sinned. And so God has chosen, and it's an amazing thing, He has chosen to see you just as if you have never committed a sin in your life. He has chosen to remember your sins no more. God declares you righteous based upon what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And once he has done that, never again will God see you as a sinner. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be justified? Hebrews again says what I just said, chapter chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. What if he remembers just one? You're condemned. But God has chosen to remember, not remember, any of your sins. You know, there's those times in our lives when our past sins could be brought up before us. You're sitting there. You're trying to get a loan at the bank. You're running the credit report. And you're thinking, oh, I hope I paid all of my bills on time. I hope I didn't forget any payments. I hope everything is okay, because if it's not, it's going to be revealed before all of us to see. you got that person behind the computer, and all of a sudden, boom, they see your whole credit history. Any sins, any late payments, any reneging on loans, whatever, it's going to be popped up, and you're going to be revealed for who you are. God chooses remember your sins no more the third thing that happened at your salvation is you were sanctified sanctified means to be set apart now if somebody told me pastor mike there's going to be a jet that's going to crash into this building in the next five minutes they're getting ready to take off from ontario airport even right now you've got the opportunity to save one person other than yourself who's it going to be she's sitting in the back in pink right now it would be my wife my wife is sanct- she's set apart from everybody else. I love everybody else in this building, but family, and you know, it's how it is for all of us, family is just set apart. Well, now you're God's family, remember? You have the right now, because of faith, to be called a child of God. You are sanctified. Now, we use the word sanctification as a continuous process. Maybe a better term is discipleship. But for the most part, the Bible uses it as a one-time event. Now, you were in this group of people who were headed for destruction, but upon salvation, you've been removed from that pile and you've been put into God's family. You've been sanctified. You have been separated from the world and you've been separated from those who are going to be judged. Sanctification is by grace, but expressed through our actions. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-4, through 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Since you are separated from the world and those who are going to be destroyed, you ought not to act like the world and those who are going to be destroyed. And then there's still one in our future. Fourth thing that happened when you were saved, you have the promise of glorification. Glorification, a future event that strengthens us today until it happens. Glorification, it's when I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon me. 
receiving that, excuse me, that glorified body in which I will live forever, in which there's going to be no more pain, in which there's going to be no more tears. We're told in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. I can't tell you, I can't describe that body to you. But we know that when he is revealed at the rapture or the second coming for some, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope or trust in the future, this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The soteriology, this doctrine of salvation, really, it's the ultimate revelation of the love that God has for mankind, the love that God has for you. We're not all what we should be. We're not what we want to be. We're not what we're going to be. But we thank God we're not what we used to be. We're not what we used to be because God has changed us. God has done away with it. He's done away with it as far as the east is from the west. Romans chapter 11. We'll close with this. Paul writing all of this deep theology. The first 11 chapters of Roman are just, Romans are just the deepest in theology and the knowledge of God and these doctrines that we're going to be studying and looking at. And then it's as if Paul stops. It's almost as if he drops his pen and just contemplates God who has done this for mankind. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you that your grace and your mercy that has given us this new life, that we have become new creations in you because of, Lord, what you have done, because you have paid the price. And again, Lord, because... You have given us this gift, that Father that has altered our very being. And so, Lord, I under, pray that we would understand from whom this gift comes. And Father, we would give you glory. We would give you glory through the sitting underneath the teaching of your word. We would give you glory through the ministry of your gospel. And Lord, we would give you glory even as we will in a few minutes through worship as well. And so, Father, we just thank you for today. Father, I just thank you for Keep in my voice that I was able to teach this morning and this evening. I lift up this week to you, Father, and I just pray that you would go before us, that you would bless those who have come out tonight. I pray for our high schoolers and the high school retreat, that you would use it to change their lives in a great way. Father, I lift up the 4th of July. We thank you for this nation and what you've done and continue to do. I pray.